Cancer, A Love Story is the intimately searing memoir of a four-time cancer survivor. The book magnificently tracks Lauren's journey to come to terms with the untold challenges of facing the dreaded disease. Forced to face her needle phobia, the author leads the reader into her crumbling world as she confronts the terrors of treatment. And I'm delighted to say uh, that author Lauren Siegel uh, joins me for Book Club this morning. Lauren, welcome to uh, Late Nights on Cape Talk, and it's such a pleasure to, to have you uh, on the end of the line uh, from uh, from Joburg. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for being invited. I really appreciate it. I've been waiting for this book for uh, at least a year. We have the same publisher, which is, is probably no big secret to anybody. Uh, and uh, and since uh, Melinda has been telling me about this book, I've been absolutely uh, gripped and, and waiting. Uh, as, uh, as I said to you before, uh, the book unfortunately only arrived uh, on Friday when I'd already disappeared off to, uh, to the Durban uh, Articulate Africa Book Fair. Uh, so I'm clutching it in my my hands and, and ready to read. So uh, while I haven't read it yet, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm literally, I may start reading <laughs> during this interview. I'm that excited. I'm that excited. Uh, the book is called Cancer, A Love Story, Memoir of a Four-Time Cancer Survivor. Uh, I suppose that the first question, if we can, uh, if we can start at the very beginning, is um, four-time cancer survivor. Can you take us back to uh, that, the, the first diagnosis of cancer? When was that and, and how old were you? Oh, wow. Okay, so let me start. I was 23 years old when I had my first diagnosis, and it was a malignant melanoma. Um, I was a young student at the time. I had very little sense of mortality and the the world of cancer. And it was a pretty serious diagnosis, actually. It was a stage 3 melanoma, which can be quite dangerous. But as it turned out, I didn't have to go through chemo. Um, I just simply had to have a huge part of my right upper leg excised during a surgical procedure. Mm. Um, and the, the episode was kind of put behind me. Uh, I, I thought I'd done with cancer. I thought that was my brush with death, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the devastating news would come how many years later? So it was 22 years later when I received the second diagnosis, and that was a a DCIS, which is a kind of contained breast cancer in one of the ducts in my right breast. Now, you spoke about uh, the the idea of of being 23 uh, and no sort of concept of your own mortality. Then to go 22 years later... What presum- I mean, you'd lived another whole life by then. What, where were you? What were you doing? And how, how did you receive the news about your second diagnosis and what had changed with Lauren? Oh, so that's a very good question because so much had changed. In the first diagnosis, I was living in Yeovil in the middle of a, the state of emergency in South Africa. And we were all kind of involved in the anti-apartheid movement and there was chaos in most nights because one or other flat got raided by the security police. It was such a tumultuous historical time and also a tumultuous time in my life in terms of my love life. I had then met the person I kind of knew I was going to marry, Mm. but he didn't quite know it yet. So I was in the throes of a a romantic um, turmoil as one can only be when one is 23. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) full forward the next 22 years and I was married to that man 
very luckily, um, and living in a much more suburban setup with two children at that point. Sure. And certainly then a diagnosis of cancer in that context feels enormously different. And obviously, as you say, by, by that point, you're now a mother. Presumably, your mortality, you, you then do start having, having to look at, uh, look at your, your own mortality because you've got these two young children. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very, my cancer was not dangerous. It was a, a grade naught cancer. So I didn't feel like I was facing any kind of death sentence at that point. But still, the awareness of the possibility um, and the fear of that cancer induces certainly tumbled me into a world that was very different from my first diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with that, uh, and with that second diagnosis, uh, I mean, were you absolutely dumbfounded? Did, and did you feel betrayed by your own body? I, I, th I think that's a perfect way to describe it. It is a terrible betrayal cancer. It is an invisible illness, so you never understand that you have it until that moment when when the call arrives that the tests have come back and there's a malignant tumour. You cannot see it and you feel so healthy on the one hand because mm. you're alive and well and going to gym and doing everything that everyone else is doing and yet you have this silent killer growing inside of you and that's a very difficult thing to comprehend. I don't want to give uh, too much of, of the book away, although, as I say, although it's, it's fresh to me uh, in one sense, I've also, I also feel that I've had a bit of a sneak peek uh, over the last year on, a, on another sense, uh, what with, uh, with, with working so closely with Melinda, uh, who of course is, is your publisher also. Um, I want to ask you, and, uh, and Melinda was saying you have to ask, you have to ask Lauren, um, it, it's one thing to have the diagnosis of cancer, it's another, uh, to know that you're going to have to have treatment and it's quite another then uh, when you yourself already have a phobia of needles oh well you see that so that takes us forward to the third diagnosis so right. we have to understand and I think it's important to say this you know to, to listeners that each we, we kind of have a blanket idea of cancer this very frightening disease it isn't one thing each diagnosis was very different. And it was my third diagnosis where the cancer had returned to my chest wall mm. that really was the most devastating because it required me to have chemotherapy. Yeah. And that takes you into a whole nother realm. And I think for me, as Melinda rightly pointed out, you have to ask me, it was so difficult because I did have a severe needle phobia and chemotherapy requires multiple injections at each chemo session and I had to have 18 of those so I calculated that 18 times 3 uh, you know it was a minimum of 54 needles that I had to go through sure. and that stumped me in in a very serious way. Where did the phobia come from? Have you been able to place it? I tried very hard in the book to answer that question and I do track it back to kind of early medical procedures that I worked with very traumatic as a child. But I also think that needle phobia holds a lot of other fears that are psychological and not necessarily concrete, that are necessarily referred to a concrete 
medical moment. Um, and I, I, I talk about that a lot in the book, about uh, feelings of power and powerlessness that I've struggled with mm. in different ways in my life. If I may, and I think this is rather apt, as I've uh, I, before we uh, before we got you on the line, I, I turned to uh, a page just out of nowhere, and I happened to land on page one hundred and nine. And would you allow me just to read a little a little part? Of course. <laughs> Doctor E has a calm and laconic presence. Like others, she finds my medical history of three primary tumours before the age of fifty rather unusual. She says, we need to work out why your body is working against itself. She adds, it's not that you are doing something wrong, but we have to find your blockages. We are treating here, what we are treat, really treating here is fear. She examines me simply by feeling my pulse and looking at my tongue. Your liver is the home of your entrapment, she pronounces, and then continues in her absolutely straightforward manner. In Chinese medicine, this organ is the force of creativity. You're a creative free spirit who hates being told what to do. You're rallying against obstacles that are being placed in your path. I listen in rapt attention. These words resonate. How is she able to discern my constitution through such a simple examination? Things go downhill from there. Dr. E leads me into the treatment room and ignores my writhing as she inserts her long needles into the palms of my hands, feet and, wait for it, the top of my head. I dare not cry out, desperate not to show my fear. Dr. E then leaves the room. As the minutes tick by, a weird tingling sensation spreads through my body. The feeling intensifies and I become panicked. Dr. E, I call out. I can hear her in the next room talking to another patient, but she fails to respond. My cries of distress become increasingly plaintive. Something dreadful is happening to me, and my initial enchantment with Dr. E in the 3,000-year-old practice of acupuncture whittles away entirely. I am now feral with fear and anger. I'm here precisely because of my needle phobia. Surely, if a doctor is going to do something that they know is traumatic for a patient, they should not leave a patient on their own like this. My amygdala that regulates my fear-based reactions is in overdrive. It becomes hard to reach for my adult thinking mind. Yo, Lauren, that, uh, that is quite the description. That is, qu that is quite the description. Uh, do, do you obviously remember that moment very clearly. Oh, so clearly. And it's quite amazing, actually, to hear you read it out to me. It, uh, not to me, to the listeners, but to hear it being read out. Um, it's, it's a very visceral moment in the book for me and the one that I will never forget because it's, it really was one of sheer white terror is all I can describe it as. Sure. I was so afraid. And it was precisely I'd gone there, as I say, to deal with my fear. So I was very traumatized when I found myself alone in the room with these needles sticking out of every part yeah. of my body. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in, uh, in that first paragraph uh, where Dr. E says, what we're really treating here is fear. Uh, how much of the book is to do with fear? A lot. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of people say to me, how have you written a book called Cancer, A Love Story? How does love come to be connected with the word cancer? Mm. And what I, I, I like to say to them is that it is a love story in the fullest sense of the word of a love story, in the Romeo and Juliet sense of the word, rather mm. than a kind of Hollywood picture of, of a love story. Fear is something that I had to work through 
very, very much so from the beginning of my third diagnosis all the way for the next two years because the journey of cancer is so scary. And what I'm doing in the book is basically saying I was terrified and what happened to me is I learned to deal with that terror. And it's not just a cancer terror that I faced, it was a life terror, and it's a terror that could be in many different situations. So part of the reason I felt like I had something to say when writing this book is I think so many of us have fear in so many different ways. And that's really what I wanted to address, how one overcomes it. How have you overcome it, if if you have overcome it? Well, there you have to really read the book. But yeah. what I can say in a nutshell <laughs> is that I reached out to so many people to help me. I did not do it alone, and I did not do it easily. Um, first of all, I, I reached out to my husband and my family who were really at the basic, most basic fundamental level every day, my stalwarts. But then I had a community of friends who were extraordinary. And then I added layers and layers of healers and helpers mm. who got me through so much. And I described that in a great amount of detail in the book. I also picked up on uh, on the, the second paragraph in this book. You are a free, creative, free spirit who hates being told what to do. Uh, was Dr. E. Wright in that regard? One hundred percent accurate. <laughs> <laughs> she was spot on, and that was part of the spookiness of that episode because she really got me, and yet she abandoned me at the same time. So mm. that was my thing. Um, I am a very free spirit, and the terrible thing about cancer is that it takes away so many choices, yeah. and your life becomes so circumscribed because you are in treatment in the most horrible way, and you can't function in the way that you are accustomed to. You're living in a suspended world, and that is very hard for us spirited person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you a little bit more uh, about the writing process uh, in just a moment, but uh, I also want to talk to you uh, about about your experience of, of treatment because, you know, when, when we talk about cancer, uh, unfortunately, increasingly, we get to a point where uh, we, we can always say, you know, somebody, we, we will all have experienced somebody in our life who's been, who's been affected uh, by cancer. But living in South Africa, that will mean very different things to different people. Uh, you were in a position where you were able to receive, uh, I'm assuming, the very best of treatment. Absolutely. And and I have to say that I really need to emphasize that I was incredibly privileged and wrote this book from a position of immense privilege. And I'm very, I'm very aware of that. And part of the reason I wanted to launch this book now in October was because it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Mm. And there are so many women in this country who do not have access to the half the resources I do. And my hope is that the book will raise awareness about the desperate need. One in eight South African women are diagnosed with cancer. And the thing that has always shocked me is that nine times as many of those women will die from breast cancer as they would in the United States. And that is because of a lack of access to early detection mm. and a lack of access to being treated 
in hospitals that have oncology units, about transport to those hospitals. We are dealing with so many basic things that actually can be fixed. So my part of my advocacy with this book is to say we have to take this disease much more seriously than we do in this country. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about your writing process. And, I mean, you are um, essentially a historian, really. Um, so how has how did that help? Did you did you come at the book from from uh, the position of a historian or writer? Which hat did you have on historian or writer or did you change them intermittently? <laughs> I think that I, I flip flop between the two. And I think my his, my history background very much influenced my writing style. I, I, I didn't just write from a personal position. I wrote from someone doing research on cancer in a way. Mm. Um, and it wasn't medical research per se. It was much more research about narratives around cancer. And so I spent a long time listening to other people's stories and reading other people's stories and reading books like the one by Siddhartha Mukherjee, which is on the history of cancer, and learning, really learning about the disease and trying as far as possible to integrate those learnings into the book. So it's a real melange of different styles and different texts and different kind of texts that I integrate into my own story. I mean, this obviously, this isn't, this isn't your first book, uh, but it's your first memoir, am I right? Absolutely. My other books have all been straight historical, not fiction at all, straight history. They, they, I've written about the history of Soweto, history of the Constitution, Constitution Hill. So it's, it's really been um, history. But having said that, I must emphasize, they've all been about people's stories. Mm. And I've always focused on uh, personal narratives when it comes to history. So I suppose it wasn't as far away as it might have, as it might seem. Yes, yes. What What were some of the biggest challenges in writing in writing memoir and in, in writing about yourself? Oh, well, I think I'm talking to someone who probably has this experience <laughs> very strongly. Um, but I, I think that the key challenge for me was finding an authentic voice mm. um, and ensuring that. I think if you're going to write memoir, you have to be prepared to be very honest about yourself and your vulnerabilities and your failings. Yes. Because if you're not, the reader immediately smells the cover-up. And I think you have to decide that from very early on. And I suppose my challenge was how much vulnerability, how much honesty... I'm writing about people that are all around me. My family is very private. They're not like me. So how much was I to reveal? Mm. And, and, and I think that was one of the key challenges. What, I mean, how many, did you go through a number of drafts? Did you, uh, in initially recognizing that, and I think that's such an important point about, uh, you know, the, the, the reader can, can instantly pick up uh, uh, whether you're being authentic or whether you are sort of whitewashing uh, and, as you say, a, a cover-up. 
did it take you a while? Did it take you a number of drafts? Did it take you uh, a number of months in the writing process to hit that? Uh, and I love that that term, the authentic voice, and I talk about it all the time. Did it take Did it take you a while to hit that, or were you able to kind of get that from from the beginning? So it took me a while because I also should say that I wrote the book initially as a journal to myself. Mm. So uh, it was about, it was in the conversion process from diary to to book that I knew would be published that I had to look for that voice because when you're writing to yourself, you can obviously be very honest and, and it's very different. Um, I also had, what I was also drawing on was a body of emails that I'd written to friends mm. and family. So it was quite a struggle to then take those and make those into a book with, with dramatic tension, because I think all books, whether they're memoirs or not, have to have a degree of that. Mm, mm. And then finding my voice was, was a process, and it was many edits. I'm not sure how you write, but I write by writing and rewriting. That's me. Rewriting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to the infuriation of my publisher. Yes, exactly. That's that's me to a T. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your uh, sort of inspirations in terms of writing. I mean, did you read a lot of of memoir prior to? Uh, did you read? Did you read memoir or anything during the writing? Because I didn't read a single book uh, while I was writing because I felt terribly guilty. And also, uh, I sort of think, felt I'm going to everything I read. I'm going to be comparing. What was your experience? So no, I had it. I had the complete opposite. I had to know what every single cancer memoir before mine had ever been right. <laughs> ever said. So I devoured cancer memoirs, and it was interesting because I thought that it would intimidate me. Mm. But what I realised is that even though so much of the stories are similar, there's actually a very different subjective voice that is brought to bear when you're writing memoir. So it doesn't matter if you're tackling a subject that has been tackled thousands of times before. It really is about you and your relationship to the cancer that makes such a difference to how the story gets told. So I can say that no two cancer memoirs are the same despite there being so much similarity, mm. if that mm. makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What sort of writer are you in terms of discipline? Are you somebody that sets your alarm for five o'clock every morning, uh, is up by quarter past with a coffee and is, is going into it for three hours? Or are, you, or, or are you not like that, Lauren? I am so not like that. <laughs> I am... <laughs> I couldn't be more opposite. I I am very disciplined, but in a very peculiar way. When I want to write, I set my mind to it and I'm very focused. But it happens in the oddest of places at the oddest of times. So it could be sitting in a car outside my daughter's school, Mm. waiting for her to come out. And I'm, I'm exploring a particular aspect of the story. Or I kind of wake up in the morning and I've got half an hour before a meeting because I was writing all through having other work going on. Mm, mm. So I am absolutely not an alarm clock writer <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Did you feel that that was a pressure at all? Uh, because I, I'm very similar to you in that sense, in that I certainly was not setting alarms uh, and, and sort of getting up because it just didn't work. And, I, and it's not for want of trying. There was a period where I tried to do that, um, but I couldn't. But like you, I would I would write in this at the strangest times and the strangest places. The minute it's almost a sort of it was almost a physical compulsion to write overcame me I would essentially just whip the laptop open and stop wherever I was like you said in the car uh, I've been in the car you know while the other half's driving and I'm typing frantically uh, on holiday when I'm meant to be you know relaxing or sunbathing uh, after my friend's wedding uh, I stayed up until the wee small hours so for me it, that's that's my sort of process but did you find that did that worry you at any point when Not when deadlines when deadlines start being talked about? Well, I, I think what happened with me, and I, I, I love what you say because I, just sorry to go back to the writing, I, I really feel like this book wrote me rather than me writing the book. Mm. I felt such a deep urge, as you say, to have the story out. It was as if it had to be told. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't an option. Um, and I think maybe where where I this my experience is unique is that I actually finished the book before I took it to a publisher. So I didn't go with ah. an idea. I went with what I felt at that point was a book good enough to be published. Mm, mm. Um, and so I wasn't up against tremendous deadlines and a publisher haranguing me. I was saying, is this book good enough yeah. to be out there? Um, so it was slightly different in that sense. It really felt like my own project up until the moment when Melinda said, oh, my God, this book is really, you know, Melinda, yeah, yeah, it's yes, a brilliant yes, way yes. of enthusiasm. So, yeah. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I do have a book here. And she kind of confirmed that for me. Um, so that was more the, the process for me. Are you a writer that believes in writer's block? Um I'm not, I, I do think that there are times when one writes much more fluently and much more authentically, if I can go back to that word, than other times. So there certainly were many hours of staring at the screen, but I, I sort of gave up those moments. I did not want this to become a pressure in my life. I felt like there had been so much pressure that this book wasn't going to function as another source of torment. So I didn't allow that to get in my way. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that didn't make it into the book? I mean, when you think about your, your editing process, uh, did you edit anything out uh, that, that you might... Hmm, that's a good question. There were incidents that took me a very long time to write because they were so traumatic. Mm. So there was a PET scan that I went through where I literally thought I had liver cancer as well, that I'd had a metastasis. Mm. Um, and that I found very hard to write that into any form or shape. And so it came into the book much later. Um, and then there were parts with my family that they asked me to take out. Um, not a lot, but there, there certainly were moments where I was aware that I was crossing over perhaps into too intimate a space. Really? So I also tempered those moments. Mm. My children are young, so I had to honour the fact that they might not want to be in the public realm in the same way that I I wanted this book to be told. Yes. 
So that that was something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for you, what do you want people to to take from from this book? I think most of all, what I want to say to the readers is that when you think that you absolutely cannot cope with what life has thrown at you, when you're in your darkest and most desperate state, there is a way out. And for me, and I don't know if this is true for other cancer patients, for me the way out was reaching out. And it was through reaching out to others that I learned to receive and I learned that I can do things that I never thought I could do. Um, And I think my message is that courage comes from all kinds of places and we all have to look for where that place is for ourselves. Mm. Mm. Lauren, before we let you go, um, would you be kind enough to read uh, read a piece uh, from from the book? Sure. Um, I I think I'm going to read a piece right from the beginning, if Mm. you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, And it's the the point at which my husband tells me, he phones me, I'm in Soweto at the time, Um, and I've just learned of my third diagnosis of cancer. Um, And I say, there is no good place to hear this news. The first time I was in the bath, the second time I was in a school hall, this time I'm driving back from a township far from home. I had assigned Johnny the task of phoning the lab for my test results. I'm too terrified to do this myself. My husband accepts this role because he's a doctor and a very kind person. He likes to ease the path of difficulty for others, particularly for his wife and children. Not that anyone can actually ease the path of this news. For me, the recipient, it is the reverse of being born, a flight back up the birth canal into darkness. The vivid blue of the sky fades as I hurtle along the golden highway towards home. The gold mine dumps that tower beside the road shrink and turn gray. The sharp outline of the Johannesburg cityscape with its familiar contours blur. The trees along Jansmas Avenue, once sculptural in their bareness, are now bleak protrusions. All familiar tableaus in the world outside are rendered indecipherable. Inside the car, the word cancer hangs heavy, dense, palpable, malevolent. It's not possible, I muttered to myself over and over. It's just not possible that a survivor of a stage three melanoma, a survivor of a ductal carcinoma, breast tumor, is also now the same person with a malignant lump on her chest ward. Melanoma, carcinoma, malignant, words that feel as invasive, as uncontrollable, as deadly as that which they signify. They suck at the air in my car and leave me searching for breath. I would say please carry on. I'm absolutely enthralled, but uh, I, I think we, we'll stop there. And, uh, and what I will say is that uh, people simply must go and buy this book. It is called Cancer, A Love Story, Memoir of a Four-Time Cancer Survivor by my guest this morning, Lauren Siegel. Uh, I cannot tell you how, how excited that I know that your publisher uh, has been about this book. I'm equally as excited. And uh, if it's anything, if your Joburg launch was anything to go by uh, the other day, uh, then uh, this book is going to do such great things. How did it feel uh, when you saw those, I mean, hundreds of people uh, at the launch in Joburg? 
Oh, it was such an amazing moment. It was actually, I didn't say this on the night, but it was two years and three days since my fourth diagnosis mm. that mm. the book was launched. And so I had this eerie sensation of time and how two years can really place one in such a different position. You know, two years ago, there I was with my fourth diagnosis, thinking my world had really ended. Mm. And then last Tuesday night, I was elated and in front of an audience of such generous and spirited people around me, just wishing me on and feeling so well and it, it was quite hard to take in, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, the same. I'm, I'm wondering how on earth we're going to fit the same number of people <laughs> into the book lounge <laughs> on the 10th of October. But that is when the launch is. If you would like to go to uh, the, the Cape Town launch of uh, Cancer, A Love Story, uh, then you can uh, get yourselves down to the book lounge uh, in uh, in Cape Town. I think you need to RSVP, which you can uh, we could, which you can do to Mervyn at the at the book lounge. Uh, I can't wait for that. Um, I'm so thrilled that this book has. Come out and I'm I celebrate for you and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's such an achievement. I can't wait to to really to to dig in and um and to meet you again on uh, on the 10th of October. We we met brief, very briefly a few weeks ago, but so um, yeah, so, so brief, too briefly. Uh, so uh, I will be clutching my book in hand and uh, and asking you to sign it if that's all right. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for such a wonderful interview. And I, too, will have your book in my hand for a signature, so we will exchange. Wonderful. Uh, Lauren Siegel, it has been wonderful to have you on the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Josie, and have a good day.